0: I'm Rochelle Smith. You're listening to the podcast, She Likes to Go Slow, a podcast that encourages you to slow down and listen. And listen is what I hope you do today. I hope you're able to get rid of your distractions and really focus on what our guest is going to say today. It was such an honor to speak with Shankar Vedantam. This is She Likes to Go Slow. We are so lucky today to be talking to the host of a Hidden Brain podcast and the author of The Hidden Brain, a New York Times national bestseller whose latest work is Useful Delusions. We welcome to our show today Shankar Vedantam. Thank you so much for speaking with us.
1: Thank you so much for having me, Rochelle. I'm delighted to be here.
0: I wonder if, uh, since we're going to be discussing the power of words and scientific importance of self-talk, can you break it down for us, those who aren't familiar with what is
1: The Hidden Brain? Sure. The hidden brain is a term that I coined some years ago to describe a host of things that happens inside your mind without your conscious awareness. Uh, The best analogy I have for it is imagine you're sitting down to watch a play. Uh, You understand as you watch the play and you watch the action on the stage that there are things happening backstage that you're not aware of. There are people who've constructed the sets and there's someone who's written the script for the play. There are uh, producers working backstage on the lighting and the sound. All of those things need to work for the action on the front of the stage to make sense. The brain sort of operates exactly the same way. We have access and have conscious awareness of a certain portion of our minds, which is like the action happening on the stage. But in order to make it possible, it turns out there's a whole host of things that are happening backstage. And that world of the unconscious mind is what I call the hidden brain.
0: Thank you for that explanation. Um, I think anyone who's online dating should read Useful Delusions and proceed with caution. Can you uh, (laughs) give us a short explanation of what situation inspired you to write about that?
1: Sure, of course. Uh, We can talk about the different ways in which the brain produces self-deceptions, but romance turns out to be a particularly good area where self-deception can play a very powerful role. Now, I think what I would say, Rochelle, is that it can play a very powerful role for for both good as well as for bad. Uh, And here's what I mean by that. It's absolutely the case that I think when we are telegraphing to one another, uh, whether that's on social media or across a, a candlelit dinner, there are all kinds of ways in which we read things into the situation that actually are not there. Our hopes, our fears, our anxieties, our worries, these things shape what we perceive of the interaction and how we perceive the other person. Now, some of this could be dangerous and some of this could be bad. Uh, We could inadvertently believe that we like someone who turns out to be really problematic for us because we're not seeing reality clearly. Uh, That would be an example of a self-deception that's harmful. But I would argue that many, many relationships, in fact, benefit from what psychologists call positive illusions. So if you're in a relationship and you believe that you're with a person who is really good looking and really Uh, You know, intelligent and smart and kind, and in fact, your beliefs are biased, this person is in fact not as beautiful, not as intelligent, not as kind, not as smart as you imagine them to be, the fact that you believe all these positive things turns out to be helpful to your relationship. You're likely to be in a happier relationship. You're likely to be in a more enduring relationship. If you're in a relationship that you believe is truly special, some element of that might in fact involve self-deception.
0: So if both people can have that point of view, it's a pretty good chance it'll be a successful relationship, it sounds like.
1: Yeah, I'm not sure of necessarily pretty good chance, but I think it improves your odds. I mean, Mm -hmm. imagine for a second, Rochelle, that you and I could take a road trip this coming year and drop by every wedding that's that's unfolding in the United States. And we ask people on their wedding day, what are the odds you think that you're going to get divorced? Now, I, th- I think most wedding, <laughs> most couples getting married on their wedding day are not going to put the odds of divorce at, you know, 40 to 50%, which in sure. fact, statistically are the odds of, of, <laughs> of marriages ending in divorce. Most people would put the odds as being very low. They would say, you know, I, I plan to be married to this person forever. Now, you could argue that in some ways, this is a, a form of blindness because people are not in fact, they're imagining that they are going to be special or different from, from everyone else. But you could also argue this is actually a very helpful position to have. I think couples who told you on their wedding day that they had a 40% chance of getting divorced, you might not predict that they're going to have a very happy marriage. Mm -hmm. (laughs) The, The couples who delusionally believe they're going to be in it forever, they might not be in it forever, but I think they're improving their odds by having that belief. Sure.
0: And with that positivity in mind, how important would you say positivity is in health
1: I think it's enormously important. I think there are a variety of studies that find that in general, people who have a more positive outlook tend to fare better when they have illnesses. Uh, The faith and positive beliefs we have in our doctors turns out to be a powerful way in which we actually get better. Uh, Our faith in the medications, our beliefs, our positive illusions about the medications we take turn out to be very powerful in shaping whether we recover from the illnesses we have. Some of the most striking work uh, in this domain is in the field of mental health, and it actually finds that people who have certain forms of mental illnesses, especially depression, might in fact be seeing the world more accurately than people who are quote-unquote mentally healthy. So it turns out that some element of mental health, you know, or what we consider to have good mental health, might in fact be not to see the world exactly as the world is. But to see the world, if you will, with a certain delusional optimism, to see the world optimistically. All of us have been through this, I think, this past year, Rochelle, with the COVID 19 pandemic. I know for my own part, at every stage of the past 14 months, I've told myself that liberation was one month away. And even when I know that wasn't the case, even when I know that I was lying to myself, it soothed me to believe that, in fact, liberation was a month away. And if you ask me right now, I've just gotten my second dose of the vaccination. Mm -hmm. If you ask me what's going to happen in a month's time, I'm still going to imagine that things are going to spring back to normal. Even if I know that's not the case, it's a reassuring thing to believe. And partly the case that I'm making is that the reassurances that we tell ourselves are part of what it means to be mentally healthy.
0: Sure. And speaking on that, I heard you say once the larger the group, the harder conformity. Do you think the collapse of group cohesion is part of our problem with the world
1: vaccinations? Yeah. So when you, when you ask yourself why it is people are willing to do difficult, dangerous things in groups, you know, so people, for example, sign up to go off and fight in wars, Uh, that's a very risky enterprise, right? You're basically Mm -hmm. signing up to put your life on the line. Why is it people are willing to do these things that might benefit their groups but might harm them as individuals? But then you look at vaccinations and you see something quite the opposite, which we see people are unwilling to take a vaccination shot, even though it might actually help both them and help the group to which they belong. And I think the speaks, both those things speak to something quite powerful, which is that you know, people like me, who are rationalists and deeply scientific, often forget that the things that rally people to groups are not necessarily logic and reason and cost-benefit analysis. You want to be able to tell an evocative story of what it means to be a member of a group, what it means to be a patriotic citizen of a country, what it means to be part of a larger group that has value and meaning. Um, And in some ways, I think as we are trying to spread the message of vaccination, this might be an idea to use, which is it's not just about a cost-benefit analysis. I think the mistake we often make is we tell people, here's the cost-benefit analysis of taking a vaccine, and that's fine. It's not a bad thing to tell people that. But I think we make a mistake when we stop there and basically stop, stop making the larger point, which is, that there truly is a public value in doing this, that part of being a patriotic person, part of being a good citizen, part of caring for your fellow person might in fact be to protect yourself and them from, from this deadly, vi- from this deadly virus.
0: Those are really, really good points. Um, going back to, I had watched you uh, speak somewhere on a video and um, I heard you say that unconscious mind has gender bias. What kinds of change in privilege have you seen or heard about in the transgender experience? I heard some interesting stuff on that.
1: Yeah, so I think we did an episode on Hidden Brain some time ago, looking at one of the most dramatic shifts in public opinion, in the United States. And I think it doesn't look specifically at the tran, at transgender people, but it certainly looks at attitudes towards broadly speaking gay and lesbian people across the United States. And, and really is actually quite striking if you, if you were to transport yourself back 20 years in the United States and sort of look at attitudes towards LGBTQ uh, people, you will find that there really has been a sea change in attitudes, not just in terms of public policies and laws, but even in terms of just our psychological views and attitudes. Uh, psychological studies find that people's both conscious and unconscious biases towards members of the LGBTQ community have actually declined quite dramatically over, over the last 20 years. Uh, we, we did a podcast episode on Hidden Brain that looked at one of the some of the factors that may not have been driving that sea change in, in, in both public and political attitudes. Uh, one of the things that we looked at was, it, you know, it turns out that it was not just uh, you know, rational arguments about the irrationality of those biases that eventually won the day. Uh, part of the success, uh, especially for the for the for the gay rights movement, was to sort of sell the idea of equality of marriage equality. That marriage equality was something that large numbers of people were able to get behind. Large numbers of straight people were able to see how they connected to the gay rights movement because marriage equality spoke to them. And as a result, it ended up changing in very profound ways attitudes towards the LGBTQ community in general. Uh, And I think, again, that speaks to the challenges that we face, whether that's climate change or dealing with a vaccine. We often make the mistake, I think, of, of approaching these things purely in terms of logic and reason and asking what is the most logical argument we can make instead of asking the more important question, what is the most evocative argument we can make? Because sometimes evocative arguments are actually stronger arguments than arguments that are rooted in science and rationality.
0: And what do you think about the power of all the influencers out there and, and the different directions they're swaying people?
1: Yeah, I think social media is sort of a really interesting phenomenon because of course what's what's happening is that you have the, you know, the, the great promise of social media was that it would democratize. Who has access to the microphone? And in many ways, you could argue that it has done that. You can look at many social movements. You know, certainly I think the you know, movements for, for, for greater equality, whether that's on race or gender, uh, have clearly come across because of social media. It's played a very powerful role, I think, in fomenting social change in terms of sort of driving social change and letting people feel like they're not alone, that they can find allies, even if those allies are not living next door to them. Maybe they're living in the next city to them or the next state to them, or even the next country to them. Them. So social media, I think, has democratized what it means to be part of groups and has therefore helped to generate revolutions that have been to the good. But you can also sort of see lots of different ways in which it's produced problematic things. Mm-hmm. Um, I think we, you have when you've essentially given the microphone to two million people, not all those people have the right intentions. Not all those people you know, know what they're talking about. And what we've seen, especially in in, in other countries, is the spread of false information spread very rapidly in India. You know, as we're speaking right now, there's a terrible, uh, the the pandemic is raging right now in India, and the numbers are growing exponentially. Uh, One of the things that I heard from some friends who live in India was that as the death rate has mounted, there have been rumors on social media that hospitals are killing people because they're not able to deal with the number of people who, have, who, are, who are clamoring to be admitted to the hospital. Wow. I'm almost certain that this is a false rumor, that this is misinformation, but because of social media and the way so, these misinformation can spread, large numbers of people now are trying to leave hospitals, even though they have COVID, potentially becoming super spreaders and carrying the infection out with them. And this wow. is an example of where you can see social media and the power of influencers having a very negative or deleterious effect, I think it's sort of, I think history books have yet to be written about whether on net social media is going to turn out to be a positive or a negative.
0: Right, right. Uh, I heard you say once the hidden brain makes us feel self-conscious when we do things that few other people are doing. Do you think it's better to think like a lone wolf or follow the
1: crowd? You know, it's really interesting. I think it depends because I think this can cut both ways. I mean, I I think the truth is that many of us are influenced by the groups to which we belong. The norms of the groups that we live in have a very powerful role, role in our lives. And it's not as if we can completely write off those norms and those rules and those groups. There's no question that our group identities and the norms that we share with those group identities are going to shape our lives in really powerful ways. So if you want to overcome things like, you know, resistance to taking a vaccine or or you want to overcome bullying in schools, or you want to try and fight climate change, you absolutely want to enlist the power of social norms to basically get to the, the very important goals that you have. It's also, I think, really important from time to time to be able to stand apart from those social norms to ask yourself, Do I actually want to follow the scripts that have been put in my head uh, as a result of social norms? You know, we talked a second ago about the transformative changes that have come that have come about in the lives of many. LGBTQ people in the United States, some of that has come about because those people have in fact challenged prevailing social norms. They've challenged the way in which they've been treated. If you think about the Black Lives Matter movement that has unfolded in the United States over the last 12 months, part of that has come about because people have challenged social norms, have stood apart from the social norms and said, yes, I know this is how the country has long done business, but we should be doing business differently. So I don't think there's a one size fits all answer to the, the question that you're raising. You can cer- certainly see ways in which social norms can and should be used for social good. And I would argue they're going to be an essential part of combating challenges such as climate change. But there are also clearly times as individuals when we need to stand apart from the groups that we're in and ask ourselves, is the group actually heading in a direction that I believe it should go?
0: And your newest book is called Useful Delusions." So I want to ask you about this delusion that like someone who, maybe some women who return to an abusive marriage or something, how do some of these deceptions happen
1: to some of the smartest people? Well, I think the the, the fundamental idea of, of my book, Useful Delusions, is that the brain is fundamentally not interested in the truth. The brain is interested in what works. In all manner of different ways, you can see how this works. So, for example, as I said a second ago, people who have delusionally positive beliefs about their partners are likely to be in happier relationships because they believe their partners are better people than they really are. Now you can call that a positive illusion and you can say we certainly wouldn't want to disabuse people of these positive illusions because these positive illusions in fact are producing happier relationships and more enduring relationships. But the very same self-deceptions are also at play in relationships that might be abusive. So for example, if you're in an abusive relationship, you might tell yourself, well, maybe my partner didn't really mean to hit me. Maybe my partner didn't really mean to treat me poorly. You tell yourself a story that in some ways inflates how good your partner is. And now you can see very quickly how this self-deception might in fact be harmful for you. One of the challenges that I think that I've encountered as I've written the book is that there isn't a neat dividing line that tells you here's where self-deceptions can be useful here's where self-deceptions can be harmful the very same self-deceptions in this case self-deceptions about our partners can turn out to be very useful things and produce very enduring and happy relationships and they can turn out to be very dangerous things and keep us in abusive relationships far beyond their you know their their sell by date um, in in all these cases, I think part of the challenge I think is to understand not sort of whether self deception is good or bad, but to ask when and how much. In almost every domain of human behavior, this is the question to ask. Not is anxiety good? Is fear good? Is greed good? Is love good? The question in all these questions is, is it, in all these cases is to ask when and how much, because when it comes to human behavior, that's the determinative. That's the thing that actually determines good outcomes. You know, when is it appropriate to en- engage in self-deception, and how much? Uh, and if you can answer those questions well, that's the difference between you know that's that's the meaning of basically living a wise life.
0: Thank you for speaking to that, and that that should definitely help some people out. I think you're one of the people. I think you've made my list for sure of people I would love to have dinner with and talk to all day. I um, have just one more question for you, though, and if you can bear with me, this might seem a little strange, but. I debated about asking you, but I just really want to know. Um, (laughs) Let me run an imaginary scenario past you. Let's say um, we had a full disclosure of other life out there, whether it was a tiny tardigrade on another planet or full beings around and among us. um, With what you know about how we think, what would happen to world religions and beliefs? Do you think we would make that work?
1: Let me see if I understand your question correctly. Are you saying that if we actually had a deeper understanding of worlds outside the worlds that we perceive, how that would change existing religions? Is that what you're asking? me?
0: Uh, Yes. Like we have so many religions who believe we are the only life. So Uh if some other news came out, how would we wrap our heads around that? Do you think religion could still exist and we would just sort of make it
1: work? I see what you're saying. Yes, I actually think religions would still exist and we would find a way to make them work. And the reason I can say that with some confidence is, in fact, because we have routinely discovered things over the past you know, several hundred years that have changed in fundamental ways, things that we thought we knew and that mm-hmm. were deeply tied into our religious beliefs. So, for example, you know, if you, if you bought the idea that the, that the earth was just a few hundred or a few thousand years old and then you know geologists come along and t- explain to us and cosmologists come along and explain to us that the world in fact is several billion years old and the universe as we know it might be you know even even older than that Now you have to reconcile these two beliefs because one belief is basically telling you the world is a few hundred years old and another set of scientific ideas is basically telling you the world is several billion years old. And what we've seen is routinely is that religions sort of tend to have learned to sort of incorporate these new ideas into theological beliefs. Um, and, and people who are not religious and people especially who are militantly non-religious will basically say, this shows you that religion is basically nonsense, because if you're willing to update your theories every time a new theory comes along, well, what uses that theory at all? Mm-hmm. Uh, I, would, I would part ways with that view, because I actually think that, in fact, religions often have played a salutary role. But the salutary role they've played is not necessarily because of the truth claims they've made about the world. But in fact, the salutary role they've played is because religions like other social systems and other social norms have helped to organize people and given people norms and rules about how to treat one another and how to behave well toward one another. Uh, we had an episode about hidden brain some t- uh, on Hidden Brain some time ago, asking the question of why religions came into existence in the very first place. And there's some evidence, it's, it's tentative, but it's promising evidence that in some ways religions may have come into existence at a time when human beings were transitioning from living in very small societies of 100 to 150 people to living in much larger groups of thousands or several tens of thousands of people. So when you live in a very small group, You could have social norms that basically enforced how people behave to one another because everyone knew everyone else there were very few people who could be strangers as people started to live in larger and larger societies this became very difficult to do and on a routine basis people came into contact with strangers all the time which is what happens in our daily lives right now i routinely meet people whom i have never met before in my life i might never meet them again And religions often arose at at this point, partly because we didn't have state institutions to basically determine how people ought to behave, how they should behave. And religions became a way in some ways of creating cohesion and creating meaningful social social rules. You can see that as societies have changed, the the ways in which religions have operated have also changed because I think they're in some ways performing a very valuable psychological function in, in, in our lives. Uh, I don't think of myself as a deeply religious person myself, but there was a time in my life when I would have considered considered myself to be an anti-religious person. I no longer consider myself to be an anti-religious person. In fact, I see many, many positive things that religion and religious people do in the world. And I think we should actually focus on how we can make religions more productive rather than asking whether we should have them at all.
0: Those are fantastic words. And thank you for answering my question. And it sounds like the human brain has a opportunity to keep us very adaptable and keep us surviving and, and come up with all these different illusions and delusions to do just that. Uh, you must work in a really fascinating field and probably get new information all the time. Does Do things still surprise you?
1: Uh, all the time. I think one of, the, one of the reasons I love sort of exploring questions related to the mind and human behavior is precisely because it's so hard to pin things down. Uh, self-deception can sometimes be bad for you, and sometimes it can be good for you. It can be really good to think highly of the people around you, and there are times when that can lead you astray. And I love the complexity of the mind, and I feel like on a routine basis, I'm constantly amazed by what complex creatures we are and how, you know, a little three-pound you know, three pounds of tissue between your ears can produce sort of all of the magic of, of daily experience and perception.
0: Fantastic. I want to thank you so much. Shankar Vedantam, get his New York Times bestseller, The Hidden Brain and Useful Delusions. Check out the Hidden Brain podcast and the website, hiddenbrain.org. Any other social media that
1: we should know about? Uh, no, at Hidden Brain is our main Twitter and uh, Facebook handles. Uh, happy to see people and engage with them on those, on those forums.
0: Thank you so much for letting us chat with you today. You've been listening to She Likes to Go Slow, reach out to us with your stories. We'd love to hear from you. The email is she likes to go slow at gmail.com and follow upcoming podcasts at she likes go